This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. turning point several years ago in our relationship where you just decided to troll me 24 7 was that a turning point or was it just like (laughs) steady as she goes i think you just leaned into it at one point there was no more pretense well there was there was a moment and i think it was when i don't know if you asked my opinion on whether your shirt and your pants matched oh no because you have some like very slight colorblindness uh-huh. issues mm-hmm. and i was like yeah it looks fine and then you didn't know if i was being serious or not and i discovered like the depth to which that sort of thing bothered you yes and now like i'm not going to do that to you all the time because like we still have to be friends i guess <laughs> at the end of the day but when the time is right then i know like i know just I know what like exhaust vent to fly down and like shoot. Yes. And like turn off my targeting computer and shoot a torpedo and blow your Death Star of emotions up. Welcome to Overdue. <laughs> this is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And they did in fact build this battle station that is me with several exhaust vents mm-hmm. uh, capable of shooting an Andrew torpedo down. Um, Ew. <laughs> What are we what are we talking about on this week's book show, Andrew? Uh we're talking about a book. Wouldn't you know it? Uh we're talking about When Women Were Birds, 54 Variations on Voice by Terry Tempest Williams. Okay. And this was recommended to us by a listener, Erica, I believe, who is one mm-hmm. of our uh illustrious Patreon supporters. So thank you, Erica. Thanks, Erica. Before we um, dive into yeah. that book, there's we had a pretty banner week. For uh, listeners on social media that had a lot of things to say to us after Peter Pan. and the vi- I had no idea, I will say, that we had so many listeners in Newfoundland. 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 And I honestly swear, I swear to you, I have no memory of talking about Newfoundland on last week's show it's at all. It's just that dumb nanny dog. J.M. Barry decided to specifically say that it was in Newfoundland dog newfoundland oh darn it newfoundland see you said newfoundland and that's like writer that's that's the right way to say that right it's like more is writer it's more writer than saying newfoundland yes correct <laughs> but it's not apparently right because we heard from at least three different people uh karen and Catherine and carolina all wrote in to say it's oh, new, oh no, Carolina wrote in about about bread and butter and sugar sandwiches. I don't remember. <laughs> That's another point of order later. There was a there was an email we got. But anyway, it's yeah, we we appreciate it. It's apparently Newfoundland like understand is the fun memory device that you can use yeah. to remember how this name is pronounced. I watched a YouTube of a guy who said, "Just think of just make up a verb that is Newfin, and then it's just the land where everyone noofs. So it's Newfoundland. Newfoundland. Yeah. Which sounds like a party town to me. 
or like a place from for that has fun for ages eight to eighty. <laughs> Newfoundland. It probably does. Come on down to Newfoundland. Uh, yeah, we also got uh, Tiffany wrote in to tell us about chocolate sandwiches, which just sounds like the what is the most delicious way to go. What <laughs> does she say? What are in them? Like what? Com- what makes up a chocolate sandwich? I think it's probably just Nutella in between bread. Let me let me. That's not chocolate though. That's hazelnut spread, mm. Craig. Mm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. You raise a good point. I did have from IKEA when I went to buy my office chair. They had some chocolate bars sitting next to the register, and I bought a couple of them. And one was hazelnuts and chocolate, and I ate it, and it was good. That's the end of the story. So funny that you that you mentioned like Europe in Denmark. Tiffany says you could get a sandwich called Pakaksugugda. It's a bunch of words. It's a bunch of letters. God. All right. Um, so yeah, please also email us about how to pronounce that properly. Um, and it's you make peanut butter toast with chocolate while the toast is still warm, so it melts. I think. Okay. I, I still think that there's probably an even pure chocolate sandwich to be had, which is just like Hershey kisses in a loaf of bread i guess like a s'mores would be sort of a proto chocolate sandwich yes yes a proto chocolate sandwich yeah the like four its first form before you use a, a chocolate stone on it Stop and it evolves it. into a chocolate sandwich and we also had many people write in to espouse the virtues of bread with butter and sugar on it I then also found an L.A. Times article from 1985 called Food for Thought. Whatever happened to the plain bread and butter sandwich? What happened to it? Apparently, I was looking it up. Apparently, you want to use like old school, super processed, like white Wonder Bread. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then, yeah, it's like a mixture of butter and sugar. And it shouldn't be too sweet. Like the saltiness of the salted butter and the sugariness of the sugar. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> should like balance each other to make a, a unique flavor combo. Yeah, very unique. Very unique combo, I would say. Did you know that saying very unique is super redundant? Because something's either unique or it isn't. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I guess you're right. All right. The more you know. On with the show. So <laughs> we should talk about Terry Tempest Williams. So it sounds like this book will, it's a memoir, right? So it does dive More in. or less, okay. yeah. Uh, Which I didn't realize when I started reading it. It was like, I was like halfway through and I was like, you know, I wonder if this is a memoir. Because <laughs> for a while it was just talking about abstract concepts and then it was talking about stuff she did like in the mid 90s during the Clinton administration. Okay. And I was like, well, is this okay? This might be real. This this is beginning to read like someone wrote down the stuff that they did. <laughs> Interesting. So tell me about Terry Tempest Williams who has... A sweet wrestler name. She does. I do, her her finisher is the TTW. <laughs> it's just called the Tempest, Craig. Oh well, okay, never mind. She you're, throws a hair dryer at you. <laughs> you're better at wrestling moves than I am, I guess. Thing I'd never thought I'd say. She is. She was born in 1955. She is an author, conservationist, and activist. Uh, she's very grounded in the American West, particularly in the Southwest. She was born in California, but then grew up in Utah. Uh, and she has won a whole bunch of awards for both her writing and her conservation efforts, uh, including a Guggenheim Award, a Landon Fellowship, 
the Hemingway Foundation grant, an international peace award from the Community of Christ Church. Like she is, she is a surprisingly accomplished lady. Because uh, few people. Why, why surprisingly? Because few people do this much stuff. Okay. <laughs> I would say, um, but I think relevant to this book is that she was born into the Mormon Church which I think will become important when we get into like the where this book even comes from. Yeah, right? Do you want to talk about that briefly just so people know what I'm talking about? What's I can, the hook? Yeah, I can What's get the started. Hook? Like the the beginning so the book begins with her Terry's mother dying. Mm-hmm. Uh dying of cancer and Terry's mother says I'm going to give you my like journals but you can't read them until after I die. Mm-hmm. And Terry's like okay cool because apparently a thing like a it's I don't know if it's a thing that everybody's supposed to do or just something that they're encouraged to do, but um like women keeping diaries and journals is a big deal in Mormonism and it's actually where we have a lot of our information about the thoughts of like early Mormon women. So there's this one book in particular, The Polygamous Wives Writing Club hmm. that I found uh that's from the Diaries of Mormon Pioneer Women that was uh compiled I guess by Paula Kelly Harline. Okay. And um yeah, so it's it's like Mormon women are supposed to write their thoughts. They're supposed to just write what life is like. And that's a thing that's sort of expected of them. And so, okay, so Terry's mother dies. She opens the journals. And even though she kept, like her mother kept buying and buying them, like they're all, every one of them, completely blank. That's a pretty good hook. Yeah. It's, I, but I also imagine that the moment where she opens them and just being like, what? <laughs> uh, you were right. The The Mormon tradition, there's like quotes that presidents of the Mormon, of the Church of Latter-day Saints have uh, quoted from the Book of Mosiah and other books that link journal writing and general record keeping to biblical tradition and kind of you can there's an argument for looking at the bible itself as a form of journaling of uh god's relationship to man and in particular with the mormon church since it it there's so much missionary work and so much evangelism Mm -hmm. that keeping a record of your own feelings about your faith is a very potent way to effectively communicate it to others like if that's Mm -hmm. your goal and the, and the goal of your church is to do that, then having a really good record of your own belief kind of keeps things moving forward. Um, and they have all sorts of scripture that they cite. And there are particular, I was fell down a rabbit hole of like, here's why you should do it. And here are some good tips for journaling. And it's interesting. I am not someone who journals. I know plenty mm-hmm. of people who do for reasons, both secular and faith-based. Sure. And I've just never been that type of person. I had a live journal in high school, and that was mostly because I was a teenager. Right. And, had and you're just like, I, I got to rage into this, into the abyss. I got to get on my Zanga and tell everybody what I think of everything. Look, my parents. Have, am I right? We, we were kind of talking about this a couple episodes, I think, with Sophie. But like, have you, you were, were you ever a journal writer? Were you ever a diary keeper? Not really. I mean, sporadically. Mostly like when I was when I was little, it was mostly about, OK, I got this computer and like, what can I do? With oh, it? Oh, yeah. I can type like a text document about how Ashley at school was a jerk today. <laughs> but um, 
Yeah, I had a live journal kind of late high school into college that I updated sporadically. And then like when college ended, I made it all private and shut it down. And if it's it might still exist out there even, but I don't know what the password is. I don't even know if I still have access to the email address that I used as the recovery address for the password. Oh, I love that. Um, The Internet never forgets. But yeah, I never I mean, I was never a daily I never did it daily. I don't do it now, certainly, because I write for work and then I talk about my own stupid life on this podcast. So <laughs> like, so those like future scholars will be able to look back at this oh, and have a, some kind of record of me. Oh, I can't wait to like be sitting around with my grandkids. Like, let's just listen to grandpa's podcast mm-hmm. and let's hear all the dumb nonsense he had to say. Grandpa, what's a pod? <laughs> Grandpa, why are you making Pokemon jokes? What is happening, Grandpa? <laughs> Grandpa, there are like 3,562 Pokemon now. <laughs> Have you caught them all? Grandpa, when you were making Seinfeld jokes, do you mean the Messiah of the Church of Seinfeld? Lieri? There would be a Church of Seinfeld. I'm basically imagining like a Futurama future. Like growing around Festivus <laughs> like a cancer, there would be a Church of Seinfeld. A religion about nothing. Re- oh, no. <laughs> anyway, uh, other interesting things about Tempest Williams. This may or may not come up in this book. I'll be interested to hear. But she wrote a book called Refuge. It, so it's, I think it was her fourth book. And that chronic one of the major passages from that book that's been passed around since is about her family's history living in uh utah downwind of the nevada desert yes uh and how i think i've read it two different ways nine or ten um women in her family had mastectomies uh and members of her family have died of cancer and battled with cancer and yeah guess what her mom died of yep cancer uh, mm-hmm. So it comes up, you could say. And when you were talking about the the Clinton administration and the and the late eighties and early nineties, she was protesting and testifying before Congress about these environmental issues and women's health issues. Uh, and I will confess, like the idea of living downwind of nuclear testing sites is not a thing I'd ever thought about the realities of people dealing with. Right. It seems like a thing that would not even be like, it would not even pass muster today. It would be so deeply unpopular that you couldn't even get it going. Her work as a conservationist is, you know, tied intimately with her writing as we were just talking about. And when she got her English degree from university of Utah, which she's taught at, she then got a master's in environmental education. She worked for grand Teton national park and the Utah museum of national history and this is I was just thinking about this. I was I was reading about her background, Andrew. Like, I don't want the earth to be a terrible, desolate wasteland, but I have never quite felt the stirring of what what is derogatorily called tree hugging, right? Like I have never felt the urge to go out and protest like a thing happening to the environment, even though I know it is bad. Yeah, like I don't know I don't know how much of that is tied to any specific issue or if it's just tied to how politics is practiced where like you talk about it on facebook yeah for like the six months leading up to the national election and then you go vote and then you don't think about it again for another three and a half years yeah yeah i I just it's just like ours is a very passive form of of 
campaigning for change. Well, yeah, and growing up in a specifically to environmental issues, growing up in a suburban East Coast town, I do not. I never had the cause to be like nature is beautiful, which I know now. Like I go to national parks or whatever, and I'm like, this is great. <laughs> but I like go to national parks or whatever. <laughs> I'm specifically thinking about Acadia National Park in Maine, which... I went and saw some tree or something, and it was good. There was I a guess. deer the one time. What else happened? I don't know. Um, <laughs> she is writing a book called The Hour of Land, which will come out later this year, about national parks, which is why this is in my head. But I think if you grew up in that landscape, like her relationship to the American Southwest and the you know the desert and that part of the world is very personal. So, right, I, yeah, because cause for like you and I living in or near big cities, it's like the only kind of development that's going to happen is expected and also probably not going to change a whole lot, like yeah, ecologically. Like, there's oh, look, they're building another high-rise apartment building, like whatever. Mm-hmm. But when you're living out in those relatively undeveloped places, so like up in Alaska or out in the American West, um, and people want to come in and like bulldoze the landscape yeah yeah like maybe that's the reason you live out there in the first place or whatever like it's it's a bigger change and i think it's gonna it's gonna elicit bigger reactions from people probably yeah it's something i'll be interested i'll probably check out this book when it comes out because uh one thing i found fascinating about places like acadia is how while it is natural the bounds of it and the rules of it are very man-made like national parks are like this weird uh what's the word I'm oxymoron in a way like where mm-hmm. they are a natural thing that we built uh it's like it's a natural thing insofar as we decided we were going to cordon <laughs> off this chunk of land and like not do our normal uh-huh. nonsense to it uh-huh. <laughs> it's very it's very interesting uh yeah. we will probably cover more of her history when we talk about the rest of this book So let's take a quick break and we'll dive into it. Hey, Andrew, our show is sponsored by Squarespace this week. Cool. Tell me more about Squarespace. (laughs) I I will do my best. Uh, Squarespace is a company that helps you, anyone listening to this, make a website. What is a website, you ask? It's a place (laughs) on the internet where you can buy things and make jokey comments or listen to a podcast or read about sports. And if you wanted to make your own website about any of those things or something else, you should use Squarespace (laughs) because it'll look professionally designed, regardless of skill level. Uh, They've got these intuitive and easy-to-use tools, which even like a a dumbo like me (laughs) can post things on our Squarespace page. Mm-hmm. And if you sign up for a year, you get a free domain, which I think is a pretty sweet deal. Yeah. And the nice thing about it for ding dongs like you <laughs> is that it doesn't require any coding experience. So you can make cool. these big old nice looking websites that look good on desktops and laptops and tablets and phones and all that different stuff. Uh, you can do it without needing to know any code. And like all the code is there, but you don't have to think about it. Have you ever done that thing where you take a Squarespace page and you just like drag the borders of your internet browser around to see how it like dances in front of you i have yeah that's called testing that's called testing when you design a website testing their responsive design all right if you wanted to start a free trial site today you could do that at squarespace.com i think not even if you want to i think you probably should 
Uh, and when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure you use the offer code OVERDUE to get 10% off your first purchase. Tell them we sent you. Squarespace, tell them we sent you. <laughs> Welcome back. Hey. Hey. Uh, Andrew, let's talk about this book. Okay. How does it start? We talked about that. Never mind. We talked about how it started. What happens next? (laughs) (laughs) What's the subtitle of the book again? It's When Women Were Birds. Uh, When Women Were Birds, uh, 54 Variations on Voice. So it's split up into like 54 different chunks. Okay. Okay. And they are all numbered with Roman numerals, and I am pretty much 100% sure that she only did it this way because the Roman numeral for 54 is L-I-V, and then she writes in parentheses after that E, so it spells out live. Okay. Is that, I'm 100% wait, sure. You're 100% sure that's the only reason she used Roman numerals? Yeah. Okay. Or maybe even like 54. Well, I think that was the age when her mother passed. And that was the age that she was when she wrote the book. Oh, yeah, that too. <laughs> I mean, I'm, you are viewing this from the point of view of someone who loves a good pun goof. So I think that's why you're prioritizing this per- parent. Yeah, I e. just saw it and I was like, you know what? I know exactly what went through your mind. So like, I would, I've done the same thing a million times. So the book kicks off with this this notion of these journals. Does it linger on that or does it go kind of right into something else well it's not it's not telling any one super linear story i think it hops around a lot Mm -hmm. in uh in terry's life okay and it 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 comes back to the journals over and over again just kind of relating them to because because these journals are are blank like you can kind of read into them whatever you want yeah yeah (laughs) yeah so uh every once in a while as you're getting these stories about um terry's life or like her interactions with her husband or her mother um she'll bring it back to the journals and say stuff like my mother's journals are a harmony of silence my mother's journals are a scandal of white my mother's journals are theatrical my mother's journals are a gesture and a vow my mother's journals are paper cranes my mother's journals are a creation myth like it goes on and on like it's 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 a because they're blank, you can read a bunch of stuff into them. And most of the book is... Wait, are, were you reading a list of quotations, or was that an actual passage? There is a big passage toward the end that's just a big chunk of those. But no, I was reading, like, I Kindle searched the okay. phrase, My I was Mother's just, Journals. I was just making was sure. Just, like, that, has just a, that has a meditative quality to the rhythm that it certainly might fit in this book, but I wasn't sure if that's what you were... Yeah, there there is a, there is a passage that's like that at the end, but that's not normally how you get it. Mm-hmm. Normally, it's like a quick inline aside that relates somehow to the stuff that 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 Williams was just talking about sure well and the idea of them being a gesture is tied to what we were saying about Mormonism right the idea that she would keep these journals but dare to not put anything in them yeah so what we I mean what we get throughout most of the book is Williams kind of using her own life and her own relationship with her mother and the writings of her mother's that do survive. So like speeches and stuff Okay, to put together this picture of her mother that she didn't leave in these journals because her mother apparently was a very private person. Okay. And didn't like, didn't relish sharing a lot of stuff about herself and the blank journals I think are a, a reflection of that. Sure. Sure. So what the book mostly concerns itself with is like 
words and speech and the power of words and speech. Mm -hmm. So, um, in what, in any particular context or like using that as a prism through which to view like anything and everything else. Wait, what do you mean? So like, is it, or is she tackling specific topics with how, when she's bringing up voice or is she, she does. Yeah. She does bring up like specific things. Um, just like the the broad strokes are like, you know, words power when they're present and when they're absent. Um, the reasons why people write stuff, the reasons why they don't write stuff, like the the way that you have to write stuff sometimes to get the kind of attention you want okay. is a thing that comes up specifically. So we alluded to it before, but in the mid-90s, there was this bill that was going through the Senate, I think. Okay. That... um was trying to open up areas of the Utah wilderness to drilling and, you know, the kind of normal, we got to do this for the economy, but like the wilderness needs to exist too. <laughs> that kind of a fight. <laughs> and so it's it to set the stage for it. It's like 94, the Republicans have taken control of both houses of Congress for the first time in like decades. Mm-hmm. Um, Newton, this is like Newt Gingrich and his crowd getting swept oh, in. Man. And, um, so Williams is part of this part of this group that's like going and testifying in front of senators to kind of persuade them and like present the case of the environmentalists. And they are like pretty much straight up ignoring her. Like there is she's talking to one of them and he says to her, there's something about your voice that I just can't hear. Oh, whoa. Ow. Um, I can name and shame if you want to give me a minute. Yeah, please do some name and shaming. I think it's also worth mentioning that we've probably presumed a familiarity with American politics in our discussion. I know we have plenty of listeners from outside the states. So if you don't know who Newt Gingrich is, you're. I, I would love to be you. I would love to be you. <laughs> Why don't you give him just like a quick... So, okay, 1992, Bill Clinton wins the presidency. He's the first Democratic president in, like, 12 years. So you had two terms of Ronald Reagan and one term of George H.W. Bush. So Clinton comes in, and as sometimes happens in the midterm elections that happen, like, in between the presidential elections, the party that won the White House then, like, lost Congress. Yes, because all of the people who did not vote for the president— uh, then Got vote mad. very fervently in local elections and state elections, which then pack the legislature with the opposition party. And that's we've seen that on both sides of the spectrum, actually. Oh, yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. That's yeah. just part of the general political I mean, it happened pendulum. in 2006, yep. I think, especially yep. in response to the 2004 election and the George W. Bush presidency. And um, I think like when you look back at it now... And this may just be because this is like this is stuff happening within our lifetime lifetimes, and so we assign special importance to it. Yeah. But like, if you look at American politics now, things are like swinging wildly back and forth, and there is less and less room for a middle ground on like literally anything. Yep. And I think you can trace at least some of that modern attitude back to Gingrich. Yeah, I think you probably can. Who was Speaker of the House for a while and then like lost that position in the wake of like the Bill Clinton impeachment stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you so know more about that, this. Like, you know more about this than I do. I am looking at a Daily News cover 
that just has crybaby in big letters and there's a big cartoon baby Newt Gingrich holding a bottle. He may or may not be wearing a diaper and farting also. <laughs> he does look like a giant old baby. <laughs> if you really think about it. But I think when you think back to the 90s, I think it I mean it was definitely a more cordial time in American politics than it is now. Like now it's just it's polarized to the point of well, of, like hopelessness almost. But I think you can see kind of the seeds of today's unflinching. I don't know if I want to say extremist, but like. No, but I see I see what you mean. Less likely I to you, compromise. Yeah, I think yeah. you can see the seeds of that being planted like in the in the 80s and 90s. And the increasing like threats now, yeah. of like, well, the government's not doing what I want, so I will just shut it down yeah. and prevent and it from working. I think that's like the. There's a whole section of American politics, like the Watergate and post-Watergate era, that I don't have as much of a read on because, like, it was before I was born, and I just haven't read as much about it. But, um, yeah, I think this is that, like, the once you start to move past that, that's where you get into this era of of partisanship and just like complete, completely locking up the government because you, like, you just you're running a campaign all the time, and you, yeah, you're you're more concerned with campaigning than governing some of this is me editorializing i'm sure (laughs) but like there is a little bit of context for you if you are outside of america or if you live in america and just don't care that much like that's where we're coming from so what are we talking about with this bill that Uh, we're talking about about. yeah congressman jim hansen and uh she says as i stood to speak hansen began shuffling through his papers yawning coughing anything to show his boredom boredom and displeasure I was halfway through my testimony when it became clear that the congressman wasn't even listening. I stopped mid-sentence. Congressman Hansen, I have been a resident of Utah all of my life. Is there anything I can say to you that might in some way alter your perspective on wilderness? He looked over the top of his glasses perched at the end of his nose, slowly leaned on his elbows, and said simply, I'm sorry, Ms. Williams. There is something about your voice I cannot hear. Uh-huh. And then it was over. I don't think he was referring to the quality of the microphone. Congressman Hansen's remarks became a metaphor, a symbolic representation of our delegation's inability, no refusal to hear what we were saying about wilderness. And so to get back to what we were saying about like the power of words and the way words should be deployed, like the answer to this problem was for Williams and her allies to um, get together a bunch of really prominent American writers from utah and like put together this collection called testimony writers speak on behalf of utah wilderness and um give it to every single member of congress they got it to hillary clinton who then gave it to president bill clinton and it it that story ends with like the bill dying on the senate floor like during a filibuster Hmm. and then bill clinton you know and and on september 18 1996 he is at the dedication of the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. He held up that book, the testimony book, oh, wow. and said, this made a difference. Wow. Okay. So, yeah, it's... How is, that, see, how is that story told in the book? I mean, it's it's pretty straightforward. I mean, it's... it's yeah, it's it's... You get those little vignettes of, like, here's why we did... Here's why we did it like we did it. Okay. okay. And then it's all put in the context of like words have power and sometimes, but sometimes it's not enough just to like go and to say those words. Sometimes you need to 
you need to find the right ones and collect them from the right people in the right way and then disseminate them in the right way. And she doesn't like that kind of compromising because she thinks that she seems to think that people give up too much of of like themselves and their beliefs when they're compromising, which I can see where she's coming from. Yeah, I think. Is, um, well, so the title is When Women Were Birds. Is she, at this point in the book, speaking of, like, when you're saying we or people in this context, is that specific to, like, people living in Utah? And are there other parts of the book that are more directly tied to the voice of women? She's not, I don't, in that particular passage, I don't think she's talking about anybody in particular but yeah throughout throughout a lot of the rest of the book what she's talking about is like speech as it pertains to women specifically um for some background on like the politics of the church of latter-day saints it typically does not get directly involved like it does not endorse presidential candidates it doesn't get it's not regularly involved but it will get involved on certain issues okay and so one of the issues that it decided to get in on was in the uh, 1970s. It opposed the Equal Rights Amendment, mm. which was a proposed and uh, failed amendment to the Constitution that was supposed to guarantee equal rights for women. Yeah, yeah. And so that, like, that can give you, and that's in the 70s when, like, I don't know, you, you had a lot of different movements like c- civil rights and 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 feminism and like all kinds of different things, like in the in the wider culture that were causing a big stir but then in the mormon church you had a bunch of people who were opposed to that sort of thing and so um, williams and her mother and her grandmother are all like fighting in their way to to get more rights for women within the church but that gives you some context as to like what they're fighting against does she dive into her relationship to the church now in the book at all has that changed as she's kind of considered a lot of this stuff I feel like most of her stuff, most of the stuff we talk about with in relation to the Mormon church is historical, but okay. honestly, I couldn't tell you like what, what views she espouses now and what, she, and, and to what extent she's just telling you like how she's working through her relationship with her. Sure. Sure. With her heritage and her like Mormonism. Cause obviously like writing is important to her. There's this grand tradition of, of Mormon women keeping these journals and these diaries. And that's something she really identifies with and really respects but on the other hand, like you have these people try and tell you, oh, you can't get an abortion. You can't you don't have equal rights. You're just a woman like, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. In an interview with uh, Roxanne Gay for the Rumpus, I think, in 2013, she was asked about her faith and her relationship with the church and kind of was saying that she doesn't jive with the fervent missionary work, um, but she's certainly interested in why the, the impulse of faith and the impulse of a spiritual life, which seems I see a lot of that dovetailing with her conservation work. I don't know. Yeah. And it, it definitely is all kind of tied together in, in this book. You get a, you get a, like there's a sequence where she is getting her first teaching job at like a Mormon school. Okay. And she wants to come in and like, put up all the, the this like stationary and stuff that's like, oh, the study of biology. And she wants to do a lot of the stuff that she thinks will engage the kids. And she goes on vacation for like a week before classes start and comes back and all her stuff has been torn down. And so she's like the next five or so years for her. Like there is one point 
where she's like fired and then immediately rehired as long as she promises not to like espouse environmentalism in her classes. Okay. It's her like simultaneously loving this teaching job and like teaching kids while also having to like encode her beliefs or like oh yeah okay ignore them you know yeah like Like, how do you how do you obey the letter of this of this don't talk about biology don't talk about environmentalism rule while also not like betraying what you actually believe about things uh that's the worst that sounds complicated yeah that sounds tricky and wrapped up in what you were saying earlier about her views on voice and how you you adapt your voice to different audiences and whether or not you are able to speak to specific audiences. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and it's probably coming through already, but I think a lot of the stuff that I found the most interesting in this book was like her relationship with the church. Sure. Sure. And her family's relationship with the church. So, um, we're talking about, she's talking about her mother's journals again and they're, and they're blank. But, um, like it's, it's not as though her mother didn't leave any writing behind. Okay. Like, cause, cause in the tradition, like in the church of Latter-day Saints, there's, there's a tradition of like speak, speaking and debating and, and like making your views known in public. Okay. That's a, that's got like a lot of history behind it and so her mother's like written speeches and stuff and that survives and she actually tucks one of those speeches into the one of the blank books that her mother left behind so you're you're that's one of the ways where we like how do i want to say this if you you can read this book as williams like filling in the pages of her mother's journal for her. Sure, sure. And like that's one of the more literal ways, I guess, <laughs> that she accomplishes that is by taking something written down and then shoving it in a blank book. <laughs> is she also filling it with anecdotes about her mom that she remembers? Or Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Just remembering like how close she was with her mother and how her mother like on the rare occasions when she did divulge something about herself it was very like taken very seriously it had a lot of gravity um and you just you knew you were being heard you knew you were being listened to Mm -hmm. which is cool because like a lot of the time when people are talking to each other like how often like okay so say you're talking to somebody at a party sure and you're asking questions you're making small talk or whatever like how often are you totally invested like a hundred percent in what that other person is saying? And how often are you doing that thing where you're just like, okay, it's like, I'm holding up half this conversation now. Uh huh. And what are you going to say that I can latch onto and then say something about myself? Like (laughs) you do that, right? Like I definitely do that. Yeah. And you also, depending on the party, you are, and who you're talking to, you <laughs> you do that thing where you're like, okay, you're talking. I'm going to listen as much as is necessary. This is a terrible thing that I'm admitting, but it's, everyone does it. You know what? It's, it's just a thing that people do, and like, it sucks, yeah. but like, you're going to listen people in the world. Just as much as I need to for you to feel like I'm still in this conversation. Meanwhile, I am like a dog with his head out the window looking for the next conversation that I can jump to. Like I'm okay. scanning the room looking for someone 
with whom I might want to have a different conversation. Or sometimes you'll be like on the periphery of two conversation circles. Oh, I hate that, that are happening feeling. at a party. And you're you're in yours, and it's kind of you feel like it's kind of winding down, and then the people in the other circle are having something that you really want to talk about. So how do you, like, what do you just say, like, oh, I gotta get another drink, and then you come back and join the other circle? Like, what's <laughs> That's your like strategy? Two feet away from the other person. Yeah. The hardest thing about that is, will there be someone for that person to talk to? I get paralyzed in that regard. Like, I don't like to leave people hanging. That's why I like to do circles rather than just like one-on-one things. One, the rules for one-on-one engagement are different from the <laughs> rules of circle engagement. You have to declare all of your weapons in a one-on-one engagement. Right. You have yeah. to say what you brought to the table. Mm-hmm. In a group fight, all things are fair game. Right. But yeah, like often those circles, they're going to, it's going to be two people who are actually like really interested in talking to each other and a Eventually, the circle is going to erode away until it's just them having the conversation they want to have, which is fine. But yeah, it's like survival of the fittest. Like everybody just mm-hmm. drops out if they can't hang. Everybody's just all talking to each other, trying to find somebody they can like pass some of their time on this earth with. Yeah, it's true. And you just swing from circle to circle until you figure it out. Oh my God. This is, we, we have found, don't, please read, actually, please read more into this little like party riff that Anna and I have been on then is actually there. Cause I think we've like uncovered a microcosm of human interaction of like being heard and the need to be heard. And everyone's just trying their best to get heard without making people, most people trying to make them people feel unheard. That's not usually a thing that we want. Mm-hmm. And I just, I want to say that if anybody listening, if I've ever had a conversation with you, of course, <laughs> It's been different. I've hung on your every word, and I completely. I'm. It's just a completely different thing. Andrew, Andrew, I'm sorry. There's yeah, a podcast over to my left that I need to go join. Okay, well, I'll just. <laughs> I'll go uh, get another drink, <laughs> and uh, I'll. I'll see you later. Don't, yeah. Uh, why don't you should email me sometime. We should hang out. Yeah, I don't um have a phone, but it's cool. I'll just. I'll find you later. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Over see ya. by the chips. See ya. See ya. And we never talked again. Nope. Who was that guy? What was he even talking about? <laughs> There's a really cool guy I met at that party, but I don't remember his name or anything about him. <laughs> Those are my favorite stories. I saw oh. a stranger and exchanged words with them. I'll never see them again. Good story. I felt like in another in another universe, in another timeline, we could have been friends. <laughs> so we've been talking a lot about voice and speaking. <laughs> Some of the reading I was doing on this book implied that Williams was also interested in expressing or exploring silence or the power of silence as as mm-hmm. if an equal or at least adjacent form of expression. Does that crop up to your memory in any interesting ways of like Well, I mean that's that's what her mother's journals are pretty much all about is is it's silence when you're supposed to be writing all this stuff down. Is there a uh, does she ascribe any sort of particular impact to that other than um, the impact that she, that it's had on her own life, obviously, because now she wrote a book where she tried to fill in all those journals? There's this whole section of the book where she basically summarizes this opera um, called Die Frau on Schatten by Richard Strauss. That's a guy who makes opera. Yeah, I may be uh, not saying that right. Um, but it's all about... 
like these man i don't i cannot even do a good job summarizing it it's basically all about like shadows and real people and like the relationship between you and your shadow <laughs> okay okay like your shadow is always there but it's also not like a solid thing i don't know it's it is both a reflection of you and not at all accurate of what you are and very and changes based on perception and things outside of your body etc yeah so my mother left me her journals and all her journals were blank my mother's journals are a shadow play with mine i'm a woman wedded to words words cast a shadow without a shadow there is no depth without a shadow there is no substance if we have no shadow it means we are invisible Hmm. and so it's yeah it's it's talking about her love of words and her like need to use words to express herself juxtaposed with her mother's decision not to do that well, and it was interesting that idea of the words kind of casting a shadow and leaving something behind or creating an impact through what you write or what you speak versus not just kind of stepping out of the party at you know, just being a wallflower, right? And just not talking mm-hmm. to anyone. And then everyone's like, who was that person at the party? Were they even here? Did you see them? Did anyone talk to them? <laughs> I guess they weren't here at all. which is a terrifying idea because that Mm -hmm. in their head that person was totally there unless they're not real i'm just spinning circles around you right now don't worry about it yeah no that's good um you wanted to talk a little bit about the style of the book because i think you found what you were you found what you were going to find interesting in the book. Like there's certain themes and I did. Yeah. Like there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff about her relationship with the church, her relationship with environmentalism, um, like feminism within the church. Um, like her disagreements with the church are, are actually pretty interesting sometimes. Like the, um, the church of Latter-day Saints does not like abortion mm-hmm. as you might maybe be able to guess. And she's like as one as part of one of her sections, she just goes she goes into what I think a lot of abortion opponents miss about it. Mm-hmm. Um, she says, no, no woman terminates a pregnancy easily. No one who has ever felt life inside her can negate that power. It is never a decision made lightly without love or pain or a prayer toward forgiveness. And yet she has, you know, she has three examples of friends of hers who had abortions who she didn't like for a long time. She didn't know they had had abortions, but it was all like every one of them happened for a specific and arguably a good reason. Hmm. And all of them like like they anti-abortion people like to paint this picture of people using abortion just to like avoid consequence for action. Yeah, yeah. Which I don't think is fair. No, I, I don't think that that's true. And I don't think Williams thinks it's fair either. And she says, uh, there is nothing more demeaning to women than to have a man, especially a man we don't know, define the laws that will govern our milk and blood. Yeah, it's it's very it's powerful. Stuff. When yeah. it, I, I always find that argument very powerful when it's expressed in terms of like people's actual bodies. Yeah. Right. right? Like you are putting things in abstract that very specifically impact the health and well-being of another person's like physical self, which is, I don't know. I don't know how yeah. you can ignore that. Anyway, yeah. we've, we've, 
been getting very political it's been on this a political show. episode hello everybody can you Boy, i hope there are a lot of like mormons and republicans because <laughs> like we i want to talk to all of you i want to i seriously do like if we have any listeners out there who are mormons like i want to hear about how you relate to all this stuff i really really do and how it relates to yeah other aspects of your life yeah, like it's it's I find it really fascinating. And this is like a safe space for people to come and to have like differing opinions because we are all going to like discuss it respectfully. Yeah. Yeah. So I I don't know. Like we have we have our views, but we're not going to like we're not going to make fun of you or denigrate you for having the views that you have as long as they're like like I think as long as you've like thought through them and they're actually views arrived at through like reflection and thoughtfulness. I am fine. Here's what we are going to make fun of. Okay. Century old authors with goofy mustaches. Like that's our jam. <laughs> so if you're a century old author who, d- who should probably shave their mustache, we're going to make fun of you. We're coming for you. Andrew, do you real quick want to hit me with your impressions of this book as a piece of writing, as a memoir? I know I don't think you read a lot of this type of book. I don't know. Is there um so how does it either like satisfy you as a reader or do you still kind of find the 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 genre or style a little wanting? Yeah, cuz we we texted about it a bit and um I like and as often happens like and I'm sure you've gone through this too where you've read a book and not been like super into it as you're reading it but then the act of researching it and trying to have a thoughtful conversation about it like makes you appreciate more what it's doing yeah i you've you've sounded way higher on the book in our conversation today than your initial comments about the memoir style led me to believe yeah so like i'm not saying that this book doesn't have interesting things to say and i'm not saying that it says them poorly but i will say that typically this very like intellectual sort of high-handed humorless discussion of these kinds of issues leaves me a little cold. Like we talked, the last book I read was, um, was, um, disgruntled, right? Disgruntled. Yes. And, um, one of the things I liked about that book is it dealt with some really heavy stuff, but it did it with a sense of humor and with like a certain lightness to kind of cut. Sure. The heavy stuff, and I'm not. I don't know. This is this is purely like me personally saying what I do and do not prefer to read yeah, as a reader. Yeah. And I'm saying that when something, when something is a little lighter, when something has a sense of humor, when something isn't just all in this one mode, the sort of high-handed, serious mode all the time. Like I find it easier to read and easier to relate to as a reader the, because that's what you would have brought to the table if you were writing about similar things. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's and that's like that's my main re- that was my main reaction to the book while I was reading it is like there's this whole thing where she talks about John Cage's 433 <laughs> which for those of you who don't who do not know um it's like John Cage got on stage and just sat there for 4 minutes it's, and 33 it's seconds a little, okay let me just let me just drop some knowledge on you Andrew it's a please drop me some knowledge it is a piece usually for piano Originally for piano, I believe. Why is it for anything? It's not. It's, it's in three okay. movements. And in the first movement, I think the piano is open. In the second movement, it's closed. And in the third movement, it's open again. Now, this, the composition, the look you just gave me, I love it. The composition 
is supposed to be the sound of the room where the performance is taking place. Yeah, I John know. Cage once went on record as saying he has had private performances of this piece for himself while walking through the woods, which to me just <laughs> breaks the whole machine a little bit. Okay, you're talking about self-seriousness. Go for so it. So when people talk about stuff like that, I cannot help but and, – and it all like thematically is very important to this book because it's about silence and how people feel that silence and react to it and whatever. But I cannot help but read about stuff like that and just be like, oh, brother. <laughs> I cannot help but do like a gigantic – almost painful Liz Lemon-esque eye roll at stuff like that. And okay. I, I realize that that's just like me and my own sure. relationship to like people being genuine about stuff. <laughs> that's true. You do. You get a little prickly when people are too earnest. I think that's why you like to troll me. I like when people are earnest, but like I don't, you gotta, you can't do it all the time. It's gotta okay. be, it's, I need a spoonful of sugar to help that medicine go down. Yeah, put you know that on I mean. your bread and butter. Do you yeah. think... I I think when Erica recommended this book to us, or maybe other people I've read talking about this book, it sounds like a good book to have around and maybe read one of the passages and then put it down and like come back to it a week or two later because it is in this fragmented memoir style. Right. Certainly, you do not need to like binge read it. So it's not like a Harry Potter book. You don't just sit down and you slam it all at once. Yeah, and so that's I wonder if that's again, we've run into this problem before on on the show by the nature of how we make it uh that reading through it at a pace for a specific deadline allow it gives certainly it, influences your reaction to it yeah. whether that changes like for the better or for the worse yeah, like yeah. It, yeah, it's not how everybody reads. So I if if you have read this book and and done that thing where it's like this is just a book around for you to dip in and out of as it speaks to you, uh, certainly let us know because I I think that would be a useful perspective to have. Yeah, Ooh, I feel like we've had a lot of opinion like more. <laughs> we have opinions every episode, but I feel like we've had more that like might potentially alienate people. So yeah, like let's have a conversation. Craig, if people want to have a conversation with us about anything that was brought up in this book or if they've read this book and they had just a different reaction to it than I did, um, how should they get in touch with us? They could write us an email to overduepod at gmail.com. There's been a pretty good email game going on, as we alluded to earlier in the show. Uh, Samantha wrote in with a big comment about her big to-be-read list and how much she is digging our show. Carolina wrote in about the bread and the butter and the sugar and stuff. Uh, you can also find us on social media at facebook.com slash overdue pod, twitter.com slash overdue pod. It's been a pretty good week with the Newfoundland stuff and the chocolate sandwiches and whatnot. I want to thank Ellen, Nicole, Tessa, Erica, Sophie, Margaret, Rebecca, and Katie uh, over at Bookman's. Re- another Rebecca, Alyssa, who live tweeted our Peter Pan episode, Emmett, <laughs> Liz, Catherine, uh, Karen and Catherine, someone named Winter Parakeet, Christine, Tiffany, uh, Melissa, Sarah, Lee, Graham, Morgan, Brittany, Melissa, and Emily, who all commented on our news about Harper Lee and that Mockingbird thing that happened. Go look at that on our Facebook page. Jennifer, Christopher, and Corey, who sent us a book about an awesome mustache baby. Uh, Andrew, if folks want to learn more about the show, they could go to our Squarespace-produced website, which is what? 
It's overduepodcast.com. Up there, we've got links to RSS, Stitcher, and iTunes, the three main ways that you can use to subscribe to the show and get new episodes when they come out. If you subscribe in iTunes, do rate and review us. We keep getting a pretty steady stream of those, and we really like it. It helps us rise in the rankings, and it just makes us feel good about this thing that we dump a bunch of time into every week. Like I love dumping time into it, but it's just nice to have that work validated, as I'm sure anybody who's ever done work can attest. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also got links to HeadGum, our podcast network. They've got a bunch of other shows. You can go check them out at HeadGum.com. Um, we've got a link to our Patreon page, which you can also find at Patreon.com slash OverduePod. It's a way to support the show financially and to suggest a book for us to read if you uh, pay at the uh, the right donation level. So mm-hmm. uh, get over there. Check that out. And to Spreaker, our podcast host, thank you to them for letting us put our bits up in their cloud and then you download the bits from the cloud <laughs> to your pod. Yeah. Uh-huh. Craig, what are you reading next week? I am well, next week we are doing uh, a choose your own adventure novel. Oh yeah. I forgot. Yeah. It's pretty goofy. Mm-hmm. It's called Statue of Liberty Adventure. <laughs> We've already recorded it. <laughs> And I think it's going to be fun. Oh, and I did. Uh, okay, so we haven't given an update on this in like forever. But uh, way back in the day, we hit a Patreon mile marker that got us to like producing merchandise, which is a thing that people have asked about a few times. Uh huh. Um, so what we are doing, and this like this might this is just an experiment. It might not be the way that we do things like permanently going forward, but. What we're going to do is I'm going to put up a poll with a few different designs that we've like commissioned um, so people can comment on those. And then I'm going to put up a few different kinds of merchandise. So we're thinking about like shirts and mugs and tote bags and stuff. And like we just want to take people's temperature and find out like what kind of stuff they you guys want to buy the most. Um, Because I think what's going to end up happening is we're going to like we're going to make a few things. And then we're going to put them up for like a limited amount of time and let people who want them buy them. Mm-hmm. And then after that, we'll just we'll make we'll get the orders printed and then we'll ship them out to everybody and everybody will be happy, which is just like logistically probably easier for us at this point in our podcast life cycle than having just a standing merch store that gets like a couple orders a week, like every week forever. Yeah, we want to we want to know what people want and that will help us do this really effectively. So yeah, look yeah, for just, that. We want to make sure everybody gets everybody who wants to give us money for our logo <laughs> printed on stuff can can do it. It's really important to us. It's very this, important this to this us happened. and to you. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your support, whether you're doing it monetarily or through Twitter or whatever. It's just every time we hear from any of you, it like makes our weeks better, especially when we're having hard weeks in our like non podcast lives. Um, until next Monday, uh, try to be happy. Bye. That was a headgum podcast.